show up, pay attention, speak the truth in love, and let go of the outcome. Hello, welcome to The Seasoned RD, a podcast connecting newer professionals in the field of eating disorders to those of us who have been around for a while. I'm your host, Beth Harrell, a certified eating disorders registered dietitian and supervisor. And I'm Abby Brown, a registered dietitian who is newer to the field. I think of myself as a well-seasoned cast iron skillet with wisdom and experience, yet always ready for something new. And I think of myself as an Instapot with innovation and a fresh perspective. This podcast brings both to the table to share ingredients, recipes, and techniques of past and present so we can all be our best for the future. The kettle is heating up. The skillet is on simmer. So join us around the table for true professional nourishment. Abby, ready to stir the pot? Let's do it. Oh, how easy is it for us to let go of the outcomes, for our clients and patients to let go of the outcomes, especially when it has to do with body, with their body. And there was a statement that Dr. Crystal Bowlby Simmons shared with us today that has resonated with me and is very powerful. Your body, your eating disorder is the least interesting thing about you. Let that sink in. This is something that you can use, a nugget, a seasoning that she's providing for us in our work with our clinicians. So Crystal is a recovered clinician. She expects full and complete healing and recovery. She believes in that. She's seen it. She's been part of that. As a clinician, we have to remember how we are human first and our client, we show up as humans together with honest, direct conversations and not to blame. So really, you know, if if our client tries to will themselves or if we try to will ourselves as clinicians into doing the right actions, doing the right thing, doing the right meal plan, doing the right level of exercise, just quote, right actions that leads to burnout and exhaustion. So please listen in for the butterfly metaphor. It's awesome. And it's something that I I love. I hope you love it too. But also reframing the shame and judgment as curiosity, seeking questions instead of answers, and super important. And so so many seasonings from all of our guests is people in larger bodies and how they're missed with their eating disorders, how weightism shows up. Enjoy this episode. Oh, welcome. Dr. Crystal Bowlby Simmons <laughs> wants to be called Crystal. So we are so excited to have you with us today. Yeah, thank you so much. Good morning. Good morning. Yeah, as Beth said, so excited. We love learning all about Laureate. So I'm, I'm anxious to get into the conversation. But just to get started, I've got a couple questions for you. So mountains or beach? Mountains or the beach? Wow. That, that depends on the season. <laughs> I always say my favorite thing is what I'm doing in the moment. So then you can't be really disappointed, you know, but I love the sound and the waves of the beach and I'm not a, a sand fan. So, you know, the cabin in the mountain, if you could hear the waves <laughs> of the beach, that would be perfect. I can picture that. I just got back from a trip into the mountains and hearing the streams go by, you know, but also not loving the sand. Mm. Okay. And then breakfast or dinner? Um, How about breakfast for dinner? We get that response very often, (laughs) actually. (laughs) Do you have a go-to breakfast for dinner option? 
I am a huge Eggs Benedict fan. Oh, um, yeah. But yeah, there's not a breakfast food really that I don't like. I think it's all pretty stellar. So. Mm-hmm. Eggs Benedict is so satisfying and so delicious. Yeah. All right. And the last icebreaker question, audiobook or paperbook? Uh, uh, probably paper. Probably. Yeah. Not That's a real difference. Yeah. Yeah, I think it get in the nitty gritty can get out a highlighter, mark the pages, all of that. That would be my preferred, I think. I get it. A lot of people say that, and I like audiobook for traveling, but paperbook for for things that I want to highlight and go back to. So, okay, I know you want me to call you by your first name, and it's so hard because you have earned the doctor, but this is casual conversation. So, Crystal, I'm going to bring you back, and hopefully this is not too traumatizing, but you are a PhD, yes? Yes. Maybe to your your board exam. Do you remember anything from that day? Oh, goodness. Well, I got licensed in California. I lived there for 15 years. And so I was well licensed and then moved to Oklahoma. And there was no reciprocity. And so they made me sit for an oral board exam and coming to California or in Oklahoma. And I can remember just that anxiety of sitting, you know, at the courthouse the top of the table with probably six or seven people in the room with blank faces and no feedback at all on how you're doing. And so I have so much empathy for anyone going into the, into the, the field or in that place of just those hurdles that you have to cross to do the thing that you love to do. But, oral yeah. those were orals like it yes. face to face oh <laughs> yeah, I just got they, they gave you this binder with all of these case examples and you would read it and then they had various questions on that mostly for ethics and jurisprudence those kind of things awesome so, yeah. Okay. (laughs) All right. Well, and you are CEDSS, Certified Eating Disorder Specialist and Supervisor. And so we are curious how you got into psychology, how you got into the field of eating disorders. Yeah, it was really by accident. I am a recovered clinician and I had going, coming um, along, I entered grad school with no desire to be a therapist at all. It was really just in the space of looking for answers, wanting to grow myself, wanting to understand kind of my own process. And through that, my healing really just like took off and I showed up at this little, uh, I thought I was going in for an interview for a group home for troubled teenagers, like unwed mothers or something. And I show up and lo and behold, it was a six bed eating disorder residential treatment center, uh, one of the first houses of Center for Discovery. And I popped in there fairly early in recovery. And they're like, what, like, what exactly would, would I be doing here? And they're like, you're going to be eating three meals and three snacks <laughs> with patients during the day. And so it's just kind of like this thing of like, well, I don't know if I'm ready for that. I don't know if I want to do that. Like, I don't know what would come up. And I just took an opportunity and, you know, it wasn't a perfect experience. There were a lot of parts of that that showed my blind spots of what work I still needed to do. I met a lot of mentors through that. 
And really, I feel like it offered me a way to really hone my recovery and coming out strong. And at that point, I wasn't, again, wasn't sure that I wanted to work in the field. And it just seemed that these doors would continually open for me. And so I got to the point where it's like, I'm going to stop running from this. This is what I want to do. This is what I know. This is the hope that I have. And I am one of the folks that 100% believe in full, complete healing and recovery. And so I feel like that's a voice that folks need to hear in their darkness, in their confusion, in their doubt. Things just took off from there. I did some group practice for a while. I worked at a university counseling center, kind of finding where my niche is. And inpatient care is absolutely that. I love I love just the day in, day out, getting to eat with patients, getting to see them interact with each other, loving the group work, loving that aspect of seeing the unfolding. So, so that's, that would be yeah. how I got here. Uh-huh. I'm for one, I'm glad that you stopped running from this. You have so much to teach us today and every day you do presentations around on lots of different topics. And, and I was interested when you talked about the first job with center for discovery, I don't know if I'm ready. And I think that's a clinic. That's a question. So many professionals might have if they have had their own disordered eating or eating disorder. And it sounds like you said that you, that you had a process even through that, that was helpful with your mentors and, and part of your recovery. Yeah. Yeah, I absolutely think that honesty part, sometimes I think clinicians, we go into the field, we forget that we're human first, and it's not some mask or a role that we're portraying, whatever, like if we're a dietitian, if we're a therapist, if we're the medical doctor, it's like we're human foremost. And so kind of being able to still be in relationship with others, having those mentors, having people that you're traveling life with, being able to talk about like, wow, like this thing is happening in my life and how is that interacting with the work? And then that relational piece, you know, it's like, yeah, like really the work that we do, it is at foremost, it's a relationship, you know, and that, and integrity. Cause I think, you know, patients are quick to pick up on, on when our words don't match our actions. And so at least to me, that spurs me on of like, how do I uh, continue my own personal growth so that I have more to offer them? If I'm rambling, just cut me off. Cause I, I go like kind of in tangents. I'm like, no. oh, I saw Abby turn her microphone on. So I turned mine off. I thought maybe she was going <laughs> to say something. Yeah. So just from doing this podcast, what I've learned is everybody has their own philosophy of care. And so it sounds like just your history with your own eating disorder has maybe shaped that for you and just the experience you've had, but how would you explain your philosophy of care? Yeah, I definitely am in a relational, I'm a relational person. And so for me, that means really presenting myself with no pretenses, being able to really model honest, direct conversations hopefully establishing a relationship where someone can hear both concerns and praise uh, affirmation, but being able to hold those things. It's like, I think with treatment, there are action steps that need to be made. And I believe having 
support and care to begin doing those new steps with support of somebody else, you know, like alongside. I'm really drawn to spirituality themes, Jungian work, metaphor, being able to look at symptoms as a conversation where it's not so much the behaviors themselves, but what are the behaviors trying to meet, what's getting activated, what story is there to tell. Desperate people do desperate things. And so I feel like, you know, if we get so caught up in like the body image distress or the behaviors themselves, we're not really getting to the heart of what needs are we trying to get met and I love Carolyn Costin. I love all the work that she's done in the field. Huge fan of the healthy self and the eating disorder self, because I think in in general, whether it's eating disorder or otherwise, being able to, to say, here's my struggle, but that is not who I am. And being able to kind of step back and to say like, oh, where is this core authentic part of me? Where's the wise soul? What does it have to say? Where is it going to lead me? And believing that we all come into the world with these seeds of potential that are, that are there. And so we don't have, it's not creating that, that part of a person is already there. And so if we can turn our eye to listen for that, we can grow it up. Even when there seems, when that part seems to be lost in a person, it's still, yeah, still there. Then and part of this too, any shout outs that you have, Carolyn Costin is one that we hear often and she's just such a formative uh, force in uh, those of us who treat eating disorders and those who are recovering or recovered as a professional. So she helped to open up some of that space for us to talk about that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Her eight keys, I think it's called eight keys to eating disorder Mm -hmm. recovery is fabulous. I use it every single day. Love that. (laughs) And so then going off of your philosophy of care, I was interested in the family systems piece that I know you do a little bit of. Could you explain that? Yeah, Yeah. I think with that, I love that the field has shifted in the past several years where it's not about blame. And it's more just helping a family heal too, because the eating disorder doesn't happen in isolation. And so whether it's a friend or a partner or a roommate or a sister, parent, kind of looking at it as the whole. And there is that aspect of relationships, healing eating disorders. If you see the eating disorder as a primary relationship in a person's life, it's like, how do you start turning towards other people, whether it's like coming out of the shame by talking openly about that or helping a family member more understand urges where they're not threatened when someone says, I really want to do this behavior, but holding space for that to offer support and accountability. And so just enhancing the the communication, the understanding, uh, all of those personality factors that come into play. And a lot of times you'll see some of that anxiety within the family system. And so Again, like the, it's not the patient that gets treated in isolation, but you know, it's like, how do we strengthen the whole family system to offer coping, distress tolerance, the ability to be with each other? Yeah. I mean, I, I got chills again when you said something about the shift over the years, because I've been doing this for a long time and, and it was unfortunate that we were saying it's a need for control. We need to separate the person from their family or the control of their, their mother or their parent or whatever. And so that's probably where that blame 
I mean, it's so ingrained in, in families and people that I love that. It's not about blame. And the nine truths taught us a lot about that too, is that families can be the best allies. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. We could give a shout out to Adele LaFrance. (laughs) Really the the validation aspect and, and that's an important message as well. Oh my gosh. Watching some of her work, even with some videos of parents who are going through their own guilt, blame, shame game and, and how to get out of it. It's just, it's just so healing. (laughs) I love Adele LaFrance as well. (laughs) So you have really, I attended one of your sessions about surrender Mm -hmm. and I, that was last year. And I really have been using that word a lot when it comes up, when it's appropriate with clients. How did you come to that? And is there anything kind of new that you're morphing towards? Yeah, well, to me, surrender in general has been just a key, just something I come back to, I think in my own recovery so much of my work early on was trying to will myself into these right actions or somehow using the same thing that the eating disorder wanted to do of just like, Oh, I've got to pick myself up by the bootstraps. I have to keep working hard. And lo and behold, that never worked. That would just lead me straight into exhaustion or burnout or getting to this place of, Oh my gosh, like I don't have any more energy to give to this. And over the years, as I've thought about that, I think the the power comes more in letting go than, I mean, we can learn all the skills in the world and keep pushing ourselves and learning. But at the end of the day, if we can be, learn to tend to ourselves or be with ourselves in the moment or calm our anxiety for right now, regardless of what's going to happen in an hour or tomorrow or next week, I feel like that's kind of that's the work of recovery, learning to be with ourselves, learning to tend to our emotions, to sit with whatever's going on and to build that container to recognize, wow, like I might not like what's going on. I might not feel in control of what's going on. I may wish even to be in a different place, but here is where I am. And can I turn my mind to just accept this moment for where it is? And even the part of surrender with the outcome, Angelise Arian has a book, The Fourfold Way, that talks about show up, pay attention, speak the truth in love, and let go of the outcome. And to me, surrender is a big part, you know, of course, we want patients to get well, like we have hopes for them of being able to choose life instead of death or to choose recovery instead of their eating disorder, but knowing that really we don't get to pick and choose what patients pick and, you know, it's being able to show up and to be available and to speak the truth, but then knowing whatever the outcome is like, that's, that's where our choice ends. And other people have that same right to make choices for their lives, even if they're not always the best choices for them. Wow. When you said that, it just like opened up some chest space for me mm-hmm. of the freedom of, of like that we talk about and, and Abby and I are dietitians, right? We have not mm-hmm. been trained up in the therapy world. Mm-hmm. So I felt it in my chest when you were talking about it. And when you talked about surrender, surrender and how the controlling leads you straight into, it leads the client can lead the clinician straight into exhaustion. The surrender just opened up that chest space. Yeah. To whatever needs to be. 
A quick shout out to Laureate. I hope you have enjoyed some of the guests that we've had from Laureate. I've enjoyed all of them and there's a couple more coming, so stay tuned. But they are an intentionally small not-for-profit eating disorders program in Tulsa, Oklahoma. So they do provide exceptional care for women and girls since 1989, long time. Laureate's individualized care and nature-focused campus, relational philosophy, as you can hear in this episode with Crystal and dedication to eating disorders research set it apart in the national treatment landscape. The program consists of independent adolescent and adult programs. So just know your patients benefit from a one to three therapist to patient ratio. A lot of the clinicians there are certified. Patients are treated by the same team, physician, therapist, and dietitian from acute level of care through discharge. And adult patients who successfully complete the inpatient program are offered 30 days of care at no cost at the Magnolia House's Laureate's Independent Living Home. So thank you, Laureate, for sponsoring Dr. Crystal Bowlby Simmons today. Yeah. We don't, we're not trying to fit someone or ourselves into a peg. It's like opening it, opening it up. I'm going to look up that fourfold, the fourfold way. Yeah. Yeah. Book. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And it's really hard. I think in a treatment context where we're oftentimes bound by insurance requirements or marks, or maybe an insurance wants to provide this number of sessions or this timeline, or they want to want someone to step down by this date. And it's really hard in that context of saying, can we just be with where, where someone is like, maybe this is a great, you know, a pause place. Like they've done this work and can we take a breather right here to, to just gear up, to go to the next phase. But sometimes within treatment, you're always like pushing for that, for that next goal. And it comes out in you know, a lot of our over-controlled ladies, they're want, they have that perfectionism or the desire of doing everything right or fearing consequences, fearing disappointment, not wanting to make anyone upset. And so I think taking the, the varnish off of, there is no such thing as a perfect patient. If you're going through the motions and you're just trying to do it all right, it's like, I don't know if you're really in the process yet, but can you bring your mess? here to the room like I can you know it's the part of like being able to sit in the mess and having space for that it's like it doesn't need to be this pretty picture you know let me know when you've completely botched your meal plan and you you know listen to the eating disorder and like yeah that's the best part that was on the plan you know yes When you said take the varnish off, back when I was working inpatient in the early 90s, I remember it was a hospital setting. And so the person who was my mentor at the time said, when all the makeup comes off and people are just who they are, that's that taking that varnish, that shiny Uh coating off and just sitting in the mess. It's like showing up as you are. And I loved the word you used of container. That just also feels so supported, place Mm -hmm. to land. Yeah. And I think highlights why inpatient facilities like Laureate are so crucial in recovery. Mm-hmm. Of course, we want them to eventually step down to outpatient and so on, but just having this space where they can be their own selves. And then they also have like 10 people on their treatment team. You know, it's just such a yeah. welcoming space for them. Yeah. What comes to mind is you know how how in the eating disorder folks feel like they're this like special snowflake like where it's kind of like oh like I have this special skill or my eating disorder this is secret then they come into treatment 
And it's like, oh my gosh, I have no unique thoughts on my own. Like this is all the eating disorder. And so I think it it highlights this part of, whoa, like this is an illness and being able to use peers as a mirror of saying, wow, like this is what I feel, but this is how I feel in response to my peer when they're struggling with the same thing. And I think that's such an important piece because it gets you out of that self-absorbed kind of thing. It, it, in some ways, it kind of wakes you up to something something else. Yeah, that special snowflake feeling of, you know, now that I'm, the, I'm letting my eating disorder go, who am I? What, what mm-hmm. am I? What's special about me anymore? Mm-hmm. Yeah, or even how the eating disorder takes away the specialness, right? Where it's mm-hmm. like, wow, like I use this to be special, but like we can anticipate what someone is going to say or think in their eating disorder, but we can't really anticipate that from someone's healthy self. I hear that all the time of I'm afraid to leave my eating disorder because I won't know my sense of identity Mm. anymore. Like I'm going to lose this piece myself as a dietitian. I don't always know how to respond to that. (laughs) How would you as a psychologist respond? Well, I always like say that eating disorder isn't powerful enough force to completely erase a person. And like that part of the eating disorder being the least interesting thing about them or the, even that part of just like, wow, it's like, let's look at maybe how the eating disorder takes you away from yourself. Interesting. That's the least interesting thing. I love that. That's a big phrase going around right now, actually. Is it? Your, okay. your body is the least interesting thing about you. Oh. You have all of these other great qualities going on. Yeah. Even like the, I think in the eating disorder in general, it's like, that's not the story that's important to tell about somebody, you know, it's like, wow, like telling me that you struggle with the eating disorder doesn't tell me anything about what made your heart ache in your life or what are your relationships like? What are the things you really aim for? What are your unique giftings? Like what are the, you know, the way that you respond to things? How do you like to be comforted or soothed or what lights your soul on fire? What are those things that just give you passion, you know, and in the midst of an eating disorder, it's kind of like that becomes the focus, but Mm it can be so short-sighted, you know, for sure. Sense of self. And, and before we hit record, we were talking about surrender and, and how this past year has been so full of it and in so many different ways. And then you kind of moved over to the word curiosity. Yeah. I think every year there's kind of like a word that just sparks my interest and it becomes like this pursuit of, oh, let me read about that thing or let me see how I can incorporate that more into my life. And so curiosity has been that for me this year. And I think I'm going to hold on to that (laughs) for a little bit longer of continuing to pursue that. And in particular, there's a poet, Rilke, who writes about living the questions and seeking questions versus answers. And something about that has been really inspiring to me and thinking, I think human beings in general, we like certainty, we like to have a right or a wrong or some kind of answer, we move towards solutions. And something about curiosity feels Like it fuels that mindfulness aspect, but also takes us out of 
shame and judgment. As an example, I was thinking about urges. And so often I'll hear patients like criticizing themselves of like, oh, like, why am I still, why is this thought still coming up? Or why do I still want to do this? Or I should be further along or all the, all the whys. And in, in my work with patients, a lot of times I'm like, I can we step, I hear that you're disappointed that this is still coming up or you wish that you were further, but can we just step aside and say, wow, isn't this interesting that this is happening? Is there something that this urge still is trying to teach me? Is it pointing me to something? Is it another way to say, wow, I need something that I'm not really aware of what I need? And just creating curiosity creates the space to start asking those questions of of what's really going on here versus the, the shame or expecting us to be somewhere else. Curiosity creates space and Mm -hmm. the urges are going to be there. Like I always tell people, you can't help your thoughts, right? You can't help those. And so being curious about when they start to come your way or the urges or behaviors or symptoms, whatever cues or triggers, it's that, that curiosity also opens up that freedom. And then maybe going off of the curiosity and maybe part of that is accepting change and transformation in the process mm-hmm. of all that. So you also wrote a really great article embracing, embracing an emotional metamorphosis, the art of surrender. So highlighting all of the topics we've been talking about, really, could you explain that a little bit, the embrace of metamorphosis? Yeah. So one thing about me is I have a very keen fascination with butterflies, right? I was going to say, I can look at, <laughs> our listeners can't see, but there are butterflies all along the wall behind you. <laughs> yeah. So it's almost like this magnetic thing. It's like I have a butterfly garden in my, in my backyard. I just love the concept and not so much that these butterflies, they are beautiful, of course, and you know, it's like, who doesn't love to look at butterflies, but in my mind, it's so so much a metaphor to me of process, because I read an article once about how a butterfly, when it escapes the chrysalis, it really is a time of intense wrestling and takes a lot of effort. And if you were to kind of step in and help the butterfly along, you would actually cause its wings to not gain the strength that they need to be able to, to move into that next phase. And so it's kind of like that part of knowing that sometimes, you know, the adage, it gets worse before it gets better. There are so many things to learn in the moment of crisis or struggle, you know, and, and we can't do that part for a patient. It's like, we might want to fix it or to soothe it or offer reassurance, but doing that keeps them stuck, needing that from an external source. Like we can come alongside and, and kind of witness the journey, but helping them do that for themselves, like to wrestle with that. And also like the process of a, of, of a caterpillar becoming a butterfly, it's just a really interesting process. Once, it, once a caterpillar gets in that locked in chrysalis, it actually 
kind of decompensates to this, it's called imaginal cells, but really it's just this liquid goo that happens in there where the DNA of the caterpillar is the exact same as the butterfly, even though they look completely different. And so it's that part of like the transformation, it goes back to that healthy self, that we're not creating a healthy self from scratch. The healthy self is already there. The eating disorder is is there. You know, it might be the prominent force in somebody's life when they come to our doorstep, but it's like, wow, like that, you know, it it might just need timing or it needs this watering or it needs something to pull out those cells to help them start taking hold and uh, creating who that life force is supposed to be. Oh, I love that. I totally am going to have to wrap my brain around this because there were so many different analogies coming through my head as you were doing the comparison of the the caterpillar and the the DNA being the same it's just a different like it's it's always part of us that's who we are and as i mentioned i had just gotten back from being in the mountains for a while and there was some discussion about wildfires and forest fires and how we when lightning strikes and there's a fire it's actually very part of of the whole important evolution of the landscape so that if we go in and put out all the fires then that doesn't allow the natural evolution or if we start to stock the the lakes and rivers and streams with certain types of fish how that throws off the balance so when this uh-huh. caterpillar is is morphing into a butterfly it's a process that that person or that area that, that they have to go through. And it's an actually, even though it's hard, it's important for them to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And even seeing it through the lens of a uh, struggle is not a bad thing. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I feel like there's a general cultural message in that of somehow like the goal needs to be like happiness or somehow we need to avoid suffering at all cost And, you know, life is a mixed bag. And so it's like, how do we become less fearful of these growing seasons or these growing times to recognize we don't have to do it alone. We don't have to just white knuckle it through the struggles that all of us, whether it's an eating disorder, some other illness or a pandemic, or uh, maybe, you know, a simple thing, a flat tire on the way to work, you know, it's (laughs) like, uh, we're going to, run into these experiences where it's, I I really don't believe that all things happen for a reason, but I tell my patients all the time, it's like, regardless of how you got to this place, can we have the kind of idea of let's not waste it? You know, Mm -hmm. it's, um, you know, I, like, I don't think that we all are going to face some, some struggle. And so when we're in that place of struggle, how do we utilize it in a way that propels us more towards life? Yeah, I, that was great. And it also made me think of your, just how typically with our eating disorder patients, their body image changes so much, but Mm -hmm. like with the caterpillar, the DNA is exactly the same. It's just how they're viewing themselves. And then I have another question. This is totally unrelated to the caterpillar, but 
What at Laureate, and we know how important the treatment team is anywhere, what is the difference between your role as a psychologist as is the therapist? Uh, Very similar. I am one of the therapists on the adult side, only I might be interested a little bit more in research or I hold more of a supervision role. And so I'm going to do that when we have grad students come for internships, like offering some education and things like that. I tend to do some community outreach as well, like talking at the local universities to to educate about eating disorders. Very similar role. Okay. So when you're working with a patient, you are doing the same thing as the therapist would. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. With the community outreach, research, supervision, and do you, you mentioned grad students, do you do supervision for licensure as well as certification or no for Uh, certain? No, yeah, not, not so much, just the eating disorder supervision. And then just for grad students, if we have master's or doctoral student. Mm -hmm. And this is, I mean, I, I, Reminder, if if anyone's listening who hasn't heard of this podcast, a big, big push for it is about supervision (laughs) because we can webinar all day and we can go to all the, we can read all the books that we need to do. Um, It's it's boots on the ground work along with the supervision that really helps us grow as a clinician. Mm -hmm. So you get to, you know, as a supervisor for eating disorders, kind of help them understand how they show up in the room. Yeah. And that goes with, if anyone like is listening to this podcast and even I am a relational person at heart. And so I am always welcome to, you know, pop in questions or calls or that sort of thing. And I'm happy to do that. Even if you just want a different perspective, or if you want to bump ideas off, like that's something that enriches me as a, as a provider as well. And so I, I just, I am very open and willing to do that. So awesome that I didn't know that crystal that you were willing to do that, which goes right into what Abby was going to ask you is, you know, how can people connect with you or, or learn more from you? Yeah. You know, email, phone, any of those things, setting up a Zoom. Uh, I'm pretty good at boundaries and being able to to say that either I'm available or not. And so definitely reach out and it might be a hot minute before I can get back. (laughs) But we we can definitely make that happen. Is there an email address or a phone number or some best way to get that initial reach out to you? Yeah, even through the Laureate website, there's my contact information there, and those those methods are great. I have a, a research gate and a LinkedIn profile. You can message me even on Facebook. That would be fine, but however you find me, any of those means are just fine. Awesome. Thank you. And then our, our wrap-up question for you. Taking yourself back or entering the field of eating disorders, what do you wish you would have known then that you do know now? Ooh. I know. It's low. <laughs> oh, man. Nothing really comes to mind with that. What do I wish I would have known? 
Well, I guess now that I've been in the field for a while, the thing that is bubbling up now in me is just that aspect of, I wish that help at every size came on faster, like that we came to that knowledge base sooner. And that's something that I think still has a lot of work to do in the field with folks coming in and then even educating medical providers or educating lay people that just looking at in what way have we as a field unintentionally harmed folks by a rigid idea of diagnostic criteria and what that's supposed to look like and how size either informs someone's struggling. And that's just not the case. You know, we know that eating disorders come in all shapes and sizes and that health can't be indicated by a person's stature or size. Any way that I can help propel that message forward into into the world, that's something that I want to do. You know, that was a hard thing for you to come up with. Nothing was coming to you. And then boom, it's gold because I'm Mm -hmm. just like nodding my head and so grateful Mm -hmm. for that. Newer people. And so when, when undergrad dietitians, therapists, or medical providers are being taught things, we are not taught health at every size. Mm -hmm. We are taught the actual opposite. And like you said, the, the harm that has been done, we have work to do, but I do wish to back in the day that, um, that there wasn't, there wasn't the blame game. And then that health at every size is pivotal in understanding eating disorders care. Yeah. Even access to care. Um, yeah. Yes. In larger bodies still meet criteria for anorexia. And it, it's um, that it's not this distinction of. And so sometimes I think that weightism shows up even, you know, how insurance provides care, how treatment is going to go or what the timeline is going to be. And that's just crazy making. Yeah. Um, crazy making. So. We have work to do, don't we? Mm-hmm, absolutely. At least we have a sounding board now. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Awesome. Oh, Crystal, I'm going to say it, Dr. Bulby Simmons. (laughs) I have to say it. You have earned your PhD and you're doing some amazing work and you've taught us already so much today. And I just am so grateful for your time Mm -hmm. with us. Yeah, you're lovely. I really enjoyed the time with you both as well. So thank you for having the podcast and for sharing your heart and your passion. Let's lean on each other and learn from each other so we can grow together as professionals in this field of eating disorders. If you want to connect with me for supervision or membership with monthly content, please find me at bethharrell.com slash professionals.